0: as alaikum alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. A'udhu billahi min ash-shaytanirajim. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. Alhamdulillahi alladhee hadana lihada wa ma kunna linahtadiyya lawla an hadana Allah. Wa salatu wa salamu ala ashraf al wa sayyidi al-mursaleen wa shafi'il mudnibin wa rahmatan lil'alameen sayyidina wa nabiyina wa وحبيب قلوبنا وطبيب نفوسنا وشفيع ذنوبنا ابي القاسم محمد اللهم صل على محمد وعلى محمد والصلاه والسلام على اهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين المعصومين المظلومين المنتجبين لا سيما مولانا وسيدي صاحب الاسر والزمان روحي وارواح العالمين له الفداء واجل الله تعالى فرجه الشريف ولعنه دائمة على اعدائهم ومنكر فضائلهم لا قيام يوم الدين. أما بعد فقد قال الله الحكيم في كتابه المبين بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم. أفحسبتم أنما خلكناكم معبثاً وأنكم إلينا لا ترجعون. صدق الله العلي العظيم. For the hastening of the return of our 12th Imam Imam Al-Hujjah, one salawat upon Muhammad Muhammad. Allahumma My brothers and sisters in Iman, Assalamu Alaykum wa Rahmatullahi wa Barakatuh. Allahu wa bi musabina bi Abi Abdullah hussein Salam. May Allah grant each and every one of us a great reward for commemorating the tragedy of Abi Abdullah Al-Hussein Alayhi Salam this year. As we have been doing for so many years and so many generations. And although we are in a different forum this year for Muharram because of the COVID-19 pandemic, and we don't have the ability to be in the company of one another, to cry in the company of one another, to beat our chest in the company of one another, to recite the Ziyarat of Ashura in the company of one another. But yet we still make the most of this opportunity that we have been afforded to remember the tragedy of Karbala and to give our condolences to Rasulullah, to Fatima zahra alayhi salam, to Amir al-Mu'mineen, to Imam Hassan, and to the other Imams of the Ahlul Bayt and especially our awaited Savior Imam Al-Hujjah may Allah hasten his return to avenge the tragedy and the blood of Karbala. We continue tonight in our discussion on the main theme for this Muharram which is dealing with temporal strife through living a Quranic life and tonight being the third night of the month of Muharram the topic which as we had announced or has been announced to the community that we want to look at is what does allah expect from us how do we live a god centric life what does allah want from you and i as believers you know the verse that i began with which to will form the basis of our talk tonight comes to us from chapter number 23 suratul mu'minun verse 115, 115 in which Allah poses what we call a rhetorical question. He poses a question to us. He knows the answer. You and I know the answer. But sometimes we forget the answer or we try and cover it up because of our own wants of the dunya. And Allah says, "Afa أَفَحَسِبْتُمْ Do you humanity think? Do you presume? Do you suppose? Annama خَلَقَنَاكُمْ That we created you, the human being, for no purpose, for no goal, just to play around, just to watch or play video games, just to have entertainment, to watch your Netflix series and binge on what you watch on, on these streaming services and play sports and be caught up in the rat race of life and that you would never come back to us, that you would never die, you would never leave this world, that you would never come back to the day of accountability in front of Allah. Obviously the answer to this is the opposite of the verse. So if Allah says do you don't don't you think that this would happen the response is yes. This will happen. This is a reality of life. We were not created abathan. We were not created without a purpose. We have a purpose on life, my brothers and sisters. And we will go back to Allah and we will be held accountable for our actions. Tonight we want to try and unpack this topic of how do we lead a God-centric life. Were we just put here on earth as all the other animals to eat, drink, have fun, procreate, make some money, enjoy life and then die and then nothing is after that? Or is there much more than what meets the eye? You know, we live in this world today and you and I know we have no need to be reminded of this, but it's a good as a a wake up call and a reminder for us that this world that we live in is full of temptations. This world that we live in is full of distractions. These cell phones that we have in our, in our hand, that we walk around with, that we sleep with, this is a temptation, this is a distraction. This entire world that we live in, we could say, in a way, is a distraction. وَمَا And what is within this world, what is within the dunya is also an, a, an, an attraction and a distraction. But sometimes we have to realize that even within the distractions, within the attractions that Allah has given to us, there is benefit. And we will see this in, in, in a few moments when we try to further unpack this topic. But the fact remains that even though sometimes there is importance in these distractions, if we use them for the right purposes, that is. There is benefit in the attractions that Allah has given to us, as long as we use them in the right way. Most of the time, you and I as human beings, and the masses of humanity, there's seven billion people on earth today, they don't look at the world in the same way that you and I as Muslims should, or at least the way that we should with the glasses of the Qur'an. We look at the world, you know, many of us look at the world with the lenses of materialism, of being a child of this dunya, of being born in the world, of the world, for the world. And we look at this as being the only thing, as the Quran says, that people say that there is no akhirah, there is no world to come. We're born, we live, we die, and nothing... Destroys us except for dahar, except for the time, right? nature. People say that, you know, nature did this, nature did that, time. Well, these are all words that they use, but obviously the ultimate reality is that it is Allah. But as I said, this world is full of distractions. And one of the beauties of the Quran, one of the beauties of this book of Allah, that Allah gave us through the blessings of Prophet Muhammad, وسلم, is that the Prophet made it known to us through the ayat of the Qur'an of the realities of this world. So when the Qur'an tells us that one of the roles of the Prophets was yuzakkihim wa alkitaba wal to purify the people, to teach them the book and the wisdom, Allah also says sometimes wa yu'allimukum ma lam that the job of the Prophet was to teach you and I what we didn't know and what we couldn't know. There are certain realities that we just gloss over because of our human instinct. But the prophets of God, especially the final prophet, came to unpack the world for us so we could see the realities of what the world is. So in chapter number three, Surah Al-Imran, verse number 14, Allah gives us one glimpse, one indication of what this world is all about. And I know when, when I read this verse and I translate it, you'll say, well, that's exactly what is this, this world is all about today. Let's look at the verse and see what Allah says. Again, if you have a Qur'an with you, chapter number 3, Surah Al-Imran, verse number 14, Allah says the following. I'll read the Arabic and then go through the translation. زُيِّنَا Linnas Hubu shahwat min al-nisa'i wal-banina. وَالْقَنَاتِيرِ الْمُقَنْتَرَةِ مِنَ الذهب وَالْفِذَّةِ وَالْخَيْلِ الْمُسَوَّمَةِ وَالْأَنْعَامِ وَالْحَرْثِ ذَلِكَ مَتَاءُ الْحَيَاةِ الدنيا وَاللَّهُ إِنْدَهُ حُسْنُ الْمَعَابِ What does Allah say? He says, Beautified is it for the man, the love of the desire of the following things. زُيِّنَ لِلنَّاسِ hubbu, shahawat. Now I'm translating nas here as the man. But scholars have said that you can look at it from the male or the female perspective. But some scholars of the Quran have defined this as being a verse maybe limited to men in one understanding. But let's look at the verse and what see the, the five or six things that Allah talks about, or seven things even, that Allah speaks about. What are the things that you and I, as men, And as women who are believers, what are we in pursuit of? What is this trivial pursuit of this world? The first thing Allah says is, the shahwat minan nisa of the woman, uncontrolled desires for women. Now, again, that's why I said that some scholars look at this verse as being universal. So nisa, they say is not only about men having this uncontrolled passion and desire for women, but it could be vice versa, women for men. But other scholars come and say, no, that this verse is specific about men. Again, we have to look at the context of Revelation, the history of Revelation. And some scholars say that even though you may find this within women, that they have obviously uh, uncontrolled passions, desires for men, for the opposite gender. But they say that, in most cases, or in, in some cases at least, this is not a strong trait within most women. And we can differ with that, we can argue with that, because this is a commentary of Qur'an that our scholars have given. We're not saying that they're 100% correct in their opinion. They're giving an example or an understanding of what they know. But if we take it as a universal, as some commentators have given, like Ayatollah Makarem and his tafsir, then we see that even today, this is something which people, you know, when you get to a certain age in life and the hormones are raging, that this is something that people, um, as, the, as the Quran says, right? This, um, زُيِّنَا لِلنَّاسِ حُبُّ This shahwa, this desire, this excessive, uncontrolled desire for the opposite gender. Number two, Allah says, is an uncontrolled desire for banin, for sons. Now, you know that when we look at the history of Islam, that women were not looked upon in a favorable light. Islam came to reform that opinion that men had of women. At the time, pre-Islamic Arabia, the daughters, as we know from the ayah to the Quran in history, that many, or maybe not many, but there were some Arab tribes in, in the Arabian Peninsula that buried their daughters alive. Not all of them. That's impossible because there would have been no women to marry. But there were certain tribes who practiced this habit. And we know that Rasulullah, one of the titles, the, one of the negative nicknames that people gave him was Abtar. You know, so Al-Kawthar came about this, Innashani Abtar. Because he only had daughters, he didn't have sons that survived past infancy. And so if we look at it as being sons, as some commentaries mention, Well, we see that people then, and even today, pride themselves on the number of sons in their family. You go to a family that has a daughter, or two daughters, or three daughters, or five daughters, or however many daughters they have, and many times people will come and say, oh, you don't have any boys. Inshallah, we'll pray that God gives you a son. (laughs) You know, as if it's a curse to have a daughter you know because there is a mindset even today within not only muslims don't get me wrong even non muslim communities they have the stigma that if you have a go- a girl a daughter she's a liability on the family because the father will pay for her food her clothing her shelter her education and then she'll get married and she'll leave the home and she won't work in the home she won't work in the fields as a son would do she wouldn't take over the family business as the boy would do and so in many cultures having girls is a liability having boys is an asset and so that's why allah says that one of the 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 is of having boys a large family of of, of boys within the you know within the family the third thing allah says is this kanatir muqanthara min wa fidda having heaps and heaps and piles of gold and silver. Look at the billionaires of the world today. People like the head of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, worth billions of dollars. And every minute or every second of the day, he's making millions and millions of dollars more. And all of these millionaires and billionaires that are out there, they pile up all of this wealth. And then they come up with this pledge this contract to give away half of their wealth in their estate before they die. you know, Half of their wealth today could solve probably the problems of half the world, let alone all of their wealth. But they say, before I die, I pledge to give away this much of my wealth. So this is a hubbushahawah, this is a love that people have for massive amounts of wealth. And then Allah says, wal al musawwama. Now, khail al are horses which have been branded or have a particular quality to them. For you and I, we don't care about horses, but we care about horsepower. Right? The young men, when they want to buy a car, they're not looking what is fuel efficient, what's good for the environment. They say, open up the hood, let me look at the engine, let me see how many horsepower this car has. You look for the BMW AMG, they look for a Mercedes AMG, they look for a BMW, or maybe we'll step up the game and buy a, we'll want a Ferrari, we'll want a Lamborghini, we'll want one of these, you know, very expensive sports cars because they have power, they have elegance. The time of the Prophet, it was all about horses and camels. And our day, it's about the car that you drive. It speaks volumes about who you are, about how much money you have. And then Allah says they have this uncontrolled passion for al-harth, al-an'am, wal-harth, for cattle and for fields, crops. Again, this is a a unique characteristic at that era. Today we don't have, or many of us don't worry about cows or sheep or goats or chicken, unless it's on our plate and we're eating it. We don't care about it. But this was at the time of the Prophet but today, we want large homes. Maybe we want a nice home in a nice part of the town, of the city, a gated community, a secure area. But then Allah says, that is the wealth of the life of this world. Dalika Mataul dunya. That all of this, ذُلِّنَ nasi hubbu This beautification that has been given to people, of the, the passions, of these uncontrolled desires, all of these things, Allah says, are mata'ul hayat dunya They're a temporary, mata', temporary. It's short-lived, right? We you and I live 50, 60, 100 years. And when you get to a certain age, even if you have the nice Lamborghini or the nicest Ferrari, when you get to 60 or 70 or 80, you can't drive that car anymore. When you have a beautiful 6,000 square foot mansion in a part of Calgary or a part of Toronto or wherever you live, When you get to a point and you're old, you can't walk up the stairs, you can't enjoy the swimming pool, you can't enjoy the hot tub, you can't enjoy the entertainment room. So mata'ul hayata dunya, it's all temporary. And it's for this world. Wallahu indahu husnul ma'a. But with Allah, that's where the excellent abode is. That's where it really is all about. Is getting to the station of liqa'ullah, meeting Allah being that nafsul mutmain irji ila rabbiki ibadi wadkhuli jannati that's what it's all about brothers and sisters it's not about the life of this world it's not about the the glitter and the glamour and the and the, and the, uh, the, the, the 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 best of this world now i don't mean to say that we don't want these things that we don't buy these things that we don't like these things that we don't Um, have these things. We realize that you and I live in this world. We're children of this dunya. We need to have education. We need to go get a job. We need to have a home. We need to have a car. We need to have proper clothing. We need all of these things. We cannot live without them. We can't live without our spouse. For those who are married, you'll know that if your husband or your wife goes away for a business meeting, or out of town for a few days, you sometimes feel the loss, or hopefully all the time you feel the loss of your spouse not being there. You need one another. You need your children. When your children go away, or they go to camp, or they go to school, you feel the void in your home until they come back. We need these things. We need the cars, we need the homes, we need the furniture, we need all of this. But the question that we pose to ourselves tonight on this third night of Muharram is that are these the goal in life? Or are these just things that we pick up while on the path towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? And there's a big difference between the two. You know, this thought of goals in life and hopes and desires, it's really reflected beautifully in in a story that I want to share with you that happened at the time of Prophet Isa, Isa ibn Maryam, Prophet Jesus, the son of Mary, peace be upon both of them. The story is about Prophet Jesus, Prophet Isa, and the farmer. So what happened is that one day, Prophet Jesus, a very devout man, obviously, of God, a beautiful prophet, as all of the prophets are, but his ethical teachings, the morality that he was trying to teach to Banu Israel, and as we know, they, many of them rejected him, many of them tried to kill him, Many of them had vicious animosity for Nabi Isa. Some obviously accepted him. Wayadnal ladina amanu, As Allah says in Surah Al-Saf, that we helped him with those who believed. He had the Ansar of the Hawariun, Man Ansari illallah, Who will help me? So he had his Ansar from the Bani Israel who converted. So one day Prophet Jesus is sitting under a tree, just relaxing, and he sees a farmer in the distance there's an old man, a farmer's got a shovel in his hand, he's digging into the ground make, you know, tilling the soil, whatever he's doing he's sitting there watching this farmer intently, what's this man doing? he stares at this man and he makes a dua to Allah Prophet Isa makes a prayer to Allah he says, Ya Allah take away the hopes and aspirations of this old man He makes the supplication. All of a sudden, he sees this old man who has a shovel in his hand. He takes the shovel, throws it away and he finds a nice comfortable tree. He sits down and he goes to sleep. So Prophet Jesus again is watching all of this, right? He waits for a few moments and he again makes dua to Allah. He says, Ya Allah, O my Lord, return hope and aspiration back to this old man's heart. He makes the dua the du'a is fulfilled by Allah. Obviously Allah is fulfilling it immediately because he wants to show Nabi Isa a lesson, teach him. And the, the, the Prophet Isa says he sees the man get up, pick up the shovel from where he threw it and starts digging in the ground, continuing what he was doing a few moments earlier. Prophet Isa sees all of this, he approaches this old man and he says to him, he says, why did you behave like this? You are working hard breaking a sweat in the field. All of a sudden, you threw your shovel away, you went to sleep, and you woke up, and you got up, you grabbed your shovel, you went back to work. What happened to you? What's, what was in your psyche? What were you thinking about when this all you did all of this? And the farmer responds to Prophet Isa. He says, in the beginning, I was working, doing what I normally do. And then he says, something came over me. That, and I said to myself, you're an old man. Your life has almost come to an end. How much more do you really think you're going to live? Why are you working so hard? So he says, I put down my shovel. I said, well, why have any hope in life? Why have any goals, any aspirations? Why not just give up on life? He says, I sat down and he says, I went to sleep. And then I I, I woke up and I had like an epiphany, an awakening. Uh, A thought came into my mind. And I said to myself, why don't I work? I'm still alive. I don't know how long I'm going to live. I still need to put food on my table. I still need to take care of my family, my, maybe my wife, my children, my grandchildren, my community, whatever the case may be. And so he says, I picked up the shovel, the spade, and I went back to work. So the moral of this story, of this moral story, is that we have to work, brothers and sisters. Because as Amir al-Mu'mineen, Imam Ali alayhi salam would say, that this dunya, he says, dunya mazraatul akhirah, That this dunya, this world, is the planting ground for the world to come. You want Jannah? You have to grow it here. You dig the hole here. You plant the seeds here. You water the seeds now. You fertilize them now to get it in the world to come. You want the, the pleasures of paradise that Allah has spoken about in the Qur'an? The, the, the Jannah with the grapes and the pomegranates and the rivers of milk and honey, Jannatin, Tajri, tahtihal Anhar, Khalidina, Fiha, Abadan, these paradises with rivers flowing beneath our feet to live in forever. If we want all of this, we have to live in this world and work in this world. And that means we have to have a spouse. If God permits, we have children, we work, we get a job, we have all of these luxuries. But we have to realize that these do not become our goal. Our goal should always be Allah. Our goal should be to get to the level of the meeting with Allah. Everything else in this life are just means to get to that goal. And so when I say, and I want to move into this next phase, how do we lead that God-centric life? How do we lead a life where we work, we go to school, we make money, we live a life? How do we do so but live a God-centric life? So I want to ask, ask three questions and hopefully answer these three in the next 10 minutes or so. One is that what is a God-centric life? Again, that's the topic for tonight. How do we lead a God-centric life? But what is a god-centric life. Number 2, how do we live a god-centric life? How do we make Allah, God our focal, our pivot that everything we do in life revolves around him? And number 3 is that what would be the outcome if we had a truly god-centric life? What would we expect to gain? Because maybe you'll say, well, what difference does it make? I could be like my friends co-workers, where they don't follow Islam, they don't follow Allah, they don't pray, they don't fast, they don't go for hajj, they don't give khums zakah, sadaqah, they don't go for ziyarah, they don't come to the majlis of Muharram, they don't spend two na- two hours, three hours every night, you know, uh, in the month of Muharram, listening to lectures, listening to the, the latmiyat, listening to ziyarats of ashura, they don't do any of that, but yet they're living a comfortable life, Why does that make me any different than them? Why can't I live the same life that they lead? So let me answer the first question. What is a God-centric life? What I would say is that living a God-centric life means that we have to have a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift meaning a change in the way that we look at ourselves and our relationship to Allah, to our Creator within the context, obviously, of the religion of Islam. Having this paradigm shift literally means that we have to reanalyze where Allah is in our lives. If Allah is at the periphery of our lives, He's just at the boundary. And you know, whenever we have a problem, we go to Allah. Whenever we have a difficulty, we go to Allah, as unfortunately, many brothers and sisters in our community do. They don't come to the Husseiniyat. They don't come to the Masajid. Maybe in Muharram they come. Maybe on the Layali al-Qadr, in the nights of Qadr in Ramadan, they'll come. They'll spend maybe half an hour, an hour. But they don't come on Thursday night. They won't make it a point to come to the Salat al-Jum'ah. They won't come on the birth anniversaries of the 14 infallibles. They, have, they worship Allah on the periphery. But then when the problem comes in their life, they're having marital disputes. The wife is not treating the husband well. The husband is not treating the wife well. Then they come to the sheikh. They come to the alim. They come to the scholar of the community. They come to the husainiyah. They come to the masjid. They come back to Allah. Now I don't say don't come back to Allah. But Allah should be at the forefront, at the middle of our lives, not at the edges. Only when we have problems. As Allah says, there are some people who worship Allah ala al-harf, at the borders of of the fringes of life. We don't want to be like that, where Allah is there at the end, when there's problems, when nothing else can solve the problems, then I'll go to Allah. No, Allah should be at the focal point of our lives. Centered, our, our life should be centered around Allah. It should gravitate around Allah, around the Quran, around the religion, around the Prophet, around the Ahlul Bayt, this is what I say when we have a God-centric life, it comes that paradigm shift that Islam is no longer at the periphery of when I have a problem, but rather Islam is there at times of good and times of bad. When times are easy, when times are difficult, times of happiness, times of sorrow. Allah is the focal point every time. Rather than saying that, I'll worship Allah when I have free time. I'll worship Allah when I have vacation time. I'll worship Allah when difficulties come into my life. No, I begin to worship Allah all the time. I follow what Allah wants all the time. Not when I want something, not when I need something, but even if I don't want anything. And who can deny that we are always in need of Allah? Allah tells us in the Quran that Antumul Fuqara. You, O humanity, are Fuqara. You are in utter need every moment of your life. And Allah is Ghani. He's selfless. He doesn't need anybody. He doesn't need you and I to become God. He doesn't become bigger for, for us to, you know, for us, by us worshipping Him rather. He doesn't become a bigger God. So, how do we lead that God centric life? if I'm saying that we have to change our paradigm, or have a paradigm shift, how do we get to that level? Well, there's no easy formula. There's no magic pill. I can give you the red pill or the blue pill, and you take your pick. And if you choose the right one, then you get to the level of having Allah in the focal point of your life. I can't give that to you. But the Qur'an can give it to us. The Prophet of Islam can give it to us. The Ahlul Bayt, The true representatives of the Messenger of Allah, may God's peace and blessings be upon them, they can give that solution to us. Let me take you through three stages of how to begin to develop this God centricity, this making Allah the focal point of our lives. Now, just let me say before I go on to that that I don't say that you forget everything else, that you forget your parents, you forget your spouse, you ignore your children. You don't go to work, you don't go to school. No, all of those are a part of this. But they are done after understanding the role of Allah. That He is the true, you know, He's the true Allah, He's the true Sustainer. And all of these things our parents, our family, our children, our job, our education they are all required, they all have to be there. So three steps, and obviously there's much more, but this will hopefully get us on the path of becoming God-centric, of having Allah in the middle of our lives rather than at the edge of our existence. Number one is that we have to recognize our prime goal of creation. Why were we created by Allah? As I said at the beginning, أَفَحَسِبْتُمْ أَنَّمَا خَلَقَنَاكُمْ were we created just for the for the heck of it? To live, enjoy and die? No, we have to realize what our purpose of creation is. That's to serve, to know, to worship Allah. He says in Surah Al dhariyat chapter fifty one, verse fifty six I did not create the jinn and humanity except to worship me. And as the Ahlul Bayt would say, ليعرفون, to know Allah, to have ma'rifatullah. Because when you know Allah, then you can begin to adore Allah, to worship Allah, to submit to Allah. So we have to first of all recognize our prime goal in life is to recognize Allah. We then have to go to the second stage to recognize that it is in our benefit to know and recognize and worship and submit to Allah not only in this world, but more importantly in the world to come. We have to realize, brothers and sisters, that this religion that Allah has given us, yes, it has benefits in this world. And you know there's many benefits that we could look at. But even if there was no benefit to worshiping Allah today, if you were to read or you were to be told that there is no reason that you should pray to Allah in this world, everything will be coming in the world to come. There's no benefit to eating halal meat in this world. All the benefits are in the world to come. There is no benefit from keeping away from alcohol or drugs in this world. Everything is in the world to come. That would be enough for us to say, well, you know what? If that's there, that's enough for me. Actually, even if we were to say that Allah told me to do it, so that's enough for me, that's better. But if we're not at that stage, at least the, the second level, so what does Allah say in chapter Fusilat, verse forty-one, or chapter forty-one rather, verse forty-six? Allah says, "Man amilasa Fali nafsihi. Whoever does a good action, it is for themselves. Waman asaha fa'alayha. and if you sin, if you go against the rules of Allah, that's your own loss. Wama bi and God, Allah, does not do the least form of injustice to His servants. Man salihan If you do good, you're doing it for yourself. When we are told as Muslims that we pray five times a day, we might not know why, our parents might not know why, our teacher in our uh, Islamic school might not know why, but as the Quran tells us, it's for your own good. And when you commit evil, it doesn't hurt anybody else. It's your own loss that you're facing. So we have to realize that benefit is for us, brothers and sisters. The third point in this journey into knowing Allah is that we need to recognize all of this. Allah, the religion, prophethood, qiyamat, imamat, all of these things have to be done because we want to know them and we want to change and be better human beings and follow the path that God has sent through the many prophets that humanity has been given and all of this has to be done without force as Allah says "Inna in Surat Al-Insan chapter 76 verse number 3 we have guided human beings to the way if they're grateful they're grateful If they are disregarding, disbelieving, uh, disrespecting of our rules, that's up to them. So we have to believe in this on our own volition. We can't allow or we can't have people force us, but we have to do our own homework. And that's obviously um, much easier today than it was in the past. But all of us have to go down that, ro- that road of struggle, of understanding our responsibilities and what are the benefits of this religion and what are the benefits more particularly of following Islam as taught by the Ahlul Bayt rather than following the Islam that other people out there today uh, follow. Number three, and we'll come to a conclusion, is what is the outcome of having such a life? You know, As I said that maybe you have non-Muslim friends or maybe you have friends who are Muslims and don't practice at all. You look at them and you look at your life and you say, Well, I both we both have nice homes. We both have nice cars. We both go on vacation. We both have the newest iPhone. We both have big screen TVs. We all have the same. But I have to fast. 30 days a year. I have to pray five times a day. I have to spend $10,000 once in my lifetime to go for hajj. I have to pay 20% of my savings every year as khums. I have to pay zakat al-fitr. I have to do this. I have to wear hijab. I can't eat pork. I can't eat McDonald's. I can't eat KFC. I have to eat halal. I can't do this. I can't do that. I can't do this. I can't do that. So why? What, 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 is, the, what, what is better? Why is it You know that I have to limit myself? What's the benefit of having this life, this God-centric life? Why why wor- worship God? It's a huge question, and I don't have all of the answers tonight. And you'll have to do your own searching and look for what is the reason why I have to, or why I follow Islam. And what should I be getting out of this religion? But if I just give you one verse, and I, as I wrap up for tonight, I would personally say, that what Islam gives me is total freedom. Not freedom in the Western sense of the word, of being able to wear what I want and go where I want and listen to what I want and look at what I want and eat what I want and drink what I want and smoke what I want and inject what I want. But I have freedom from the society that I live in. I'm not forced to be in a bubble where I have to wear a particular brand of sneakers to fit in or have a particular hairstyle to be cool, or I have to wear a particular brand of uh, of a hoodie, let's say, to look, you know, to fit in with my classmates. Islam gives me the freedom to be who I am, to be free of the society that was, wants to impose itself on me. And let me end with this verse, from chapter number seven, Surah al-Araf, verse one hundred and fifty-seven. It's a, a small part of a lengthy verse, but where Allah tells us the role of the Prophet, why He sent Rasulullah, and Allah says, "Wa anhum israhum wal Allah says that the role of the Rasul of Rasulullah, the Prophet Muhammad, sallallahu alayhi wa alaihi wasallam. He removes from them the burdens and the shackles which were upon them. Now, you and I don't have handcuffs, shackled; We don't have a a, a collar around our neck. We're not slaves in that way. As we see in the history of America, which was founded on slavery and discrimination, or many of the European countries or many other countries that were built on the backs of slaves, but the Prophet is told, or we're told rather, that the role of Rasulullah is to break our shackles of negative culture, of the society that we live in, to allow us to be free, to allow us to worship Allah, to allow us to worship God in the way that God deserves to be worshipped. Not that we have to worship Netflix or social media Or the Instagram influencers, because they wear a certain style of clothing, now because they're an Instagram influencer, I have to follow them. Or because this Instagram influencer, she wears her hijab in a certain way, the girls follow her. And then tomorrow, unfortunately, that Instagram influencer removes her hijab. So now I feel that I have to do the same. Islam and God-centricity gives us freedom from these sorts of things, brothers and sisters. It doesn't benefit God it benefits you in this world and if it doesn't benefit you in this world at least rest assured it will benefit you in the world to come sallu ala muhammad wa ali muhammad let us take our hearts in these next few moments as i before i conclude let us take our hearts to karbala in this third night of the night of the month of Muharram we just passed into or we're just ending the second day of Muharram and we look back at history in the year 61 after the Hijrah as we mentioned on the very first night that it was at the end, end of the month of Rajab in the year 60 that Imam Hussein was in Medina and he got the notice that Muawiyah had died in Syria and immediately the order was given that Yazid was the, was the Khalifa. He took over from his father. And the first obligation upon the Ummah, for, from their perspective, was for the Ummah to give the Bayah the allegiance to Yazid, Lanatullah alay. Yazid, whom as we said, the night that Imam Hussein was told, you must give the Bayah, when Walid brought him to the palace in Medina. And Imam Hussein made it clear, as I mentioned on the first night, that Yazid is sharibul al-Khamar. He drinks alcohol. He kills innocent people. He's a wicked man. He's an evil man. He's a sick, depraved, morally bankrupt individual. As his father was, as that lineage was. And he said, one like me would never give allegiance to one like Yazid. So we know that it was the end of Rajab. Early Sha'aban, Imam Hussein left Medina to go to Mecca. Sha'aban, Ramadan, Shawwal, Dhul Ka'ada, Eitha Dhul Hijjah. They leave Mecca, they get out of the Ihram and they go towards the city of Kufa. As we know, Muslim Ibn Aqil, the cousin of Amir al-Mu'mineen, had been sent to Kufa. He gauged the situation. Initially, it seemed like it was ripe. People were willing to accept him. And as we know in the story and the narrative of Muslim ibn Aqeel salam, that overnight the people switched. They were too worried, they were too afraid of the government. They didn't want the, the, you know, to be arrested, to put in prison, whatever. And so what ends up happening is that Imam Hussein leaves Mecca towards Kufa. He gets stopped in Karbala. And it was on a day like this, on the 2nd of Muharram, my young brothers and sisters and my community members, on the second of Muharram that Imam Hussein, السلام, at the caravan of women and children and companions reaches this land of Nainawa. It was the second of Muharram and they reached the land and the caravan stops. Imam Hussein tells the animals, he tells the, the horses, the camels, the riders, he tells them all to stop and stay where they are. And he asks a question, he says, Ma' Ismu Hadihil what is the name of this land that we're on? And some people gave him different names. They say, this is Nainawa. This is this name. They gave him different titles. And then he says, does this is city or this land rather, because that wasn't a city, it was just a piece of dirt. He says, does this area have a different name? And it says in the books of Maqtala, Sayyid Ibn Ta'awus quotes in his book, Al-Luhuf, فَقِيلَ Karbalah. Karbala." is said to Imam Hussein, yes, this land is also called Karbala. And Imam Hussein makes a du'a. He says, "Allahumma inni audhika min al karbi wal bala O oh Allah, I seek your protection. I seek protection in you from the karb and the bala, from the difficulties and the tribulations. He then turns to the women. He turns to the men of the who are who have come along with him from Mecca, from Medina, all the way to this, this land of Karbala. He tells all the people. He says. هَذَا مَوْضِئُ كَرْبِ وَالْبَلَىٰ He says, Indeed, this is the place of difficulties and tribulations. He says, أَنزِلُ هَا هُنَا مَحَتُوا رِحَالِنَا وَمَصْفَكُوا دِمَائِنَا وَهُنَا مَحَلُّ قُبُورِنَا بِهَذَا حَدَّثَنِي جَدِّ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وآله وسلم He says, All of you disembark off of the animals. Let's set up tent right here. Let's set up camp right here on this land called Karbala. He says, This is going to be our place of residence. This is going to be where our blood will flow like the river, that our blood will be shed on this land of Karbala. He says that this is where our graves will be. This is where our qubur will be. And he says that this is what my grandfather, my Jad Rasulullah, tells me. He then ends, he then says these last words. Brothers and sisters, I'll end with this. He says these words of poetry. He says, Ya Dahru. Ya dahru uffin laka min Khalil, woe unto you, O oh, this world! What a bad friend you are! Kam laka fil ishraqi wal asil, how much was for you every night and every morning? Min wa wamajidin qadil, how many of the people who have been seeking you this dunya you have killed, you have annihilated? So many people that have come before. Wa dahrulayakna'u bil badil. He says, "But it is this world which does not show any contempt." Imam Hussein goes on to say, "Well, amrufi daka ilal jalil, that for verily every affair, every action will go back to its Lord. and every living person, every living one has a path before him that they will traverse. Ma akrab al waada min how near is that promised time?" How near is it that day that our blood will be shed in this plain of Karbala ma Akkrabal wada Minar Rahil he's foretelling his death brothers and sisters he knows that his days are numbered on this earth. He knows that this is the end that they will not see the city of Kufa. And the only way that they will see the city of Kufas with their heads on the spears, with their bodies being decimated on the plains of Karbala, with the women taken as captives, with the children who have been taken as prisoners. And he says, وَإِنَّمَا الْأَمْرُ إِلَى الْجَلِيلُ For moving forward towards Allah's paradise, this is a command that we will meet, reach, that our lives will be uh, taken, our blood will be shed, our heads will be severed but we will eventually make it to Jannah, to Paradise, to be in the company of Rasulullah, to be in the company of my mother Fatima al-Zahra, to be in the company of my father and my brother and all of the shuhada who have gone before us. wa inna ilayhi raji'un." We ask Allah on this third night of the month of Muharram for Allah to accept this act of worship from all of us tonight. We ask Allah to allow us to live a God-centric life, to be able to put God in priority, to give focus to Allah, to make Allah our priority in our lives. We ask Allah to bless us all in this month of Muharram. We ask Allah to keep us away from all of the difficulties and challenges. We ask Allah to protect all of our community members, all of the Mu'mineen around the world, all of the lovers of the Ahlul Bayt alayhi from the COVID-19 pandemic. And we ask Allah to give us a speedy cure to this pandemic for all of us and all of humanity who are suffering tremendously around the world to come back to some sort of normalcy of life.